continuing today in our series from the book of Acts. Uh, we, we took a break last week to focus on, on Jesus and his coming and why he came to rescue sinners. And this week we're continuing back in our series in the book of Acts. And we'll be going in, from Acts 16 verses 11 through 40. So if you go ahead and turn your Bibles to that passage and Stan McCune, I'm going to have him come and read this passage for you this morning. Let's listen to God's word. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia, 
And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we are grateful. We are grateful that you have made those, all those who believe in you, alive. Lord, I I pray that this morning you would use this passage and my words to bring hope and faith. God, hope for the fact that you are at work. You continue to be at work. You are actively working. God, not only in our lives, but Lord, in the world around us. That sometimes we can forget that you are at work and we can, we can be overwhelmed by our own circumstances, by difficulties, by challenges. God, I pray that you would lift up our eyes so that we would see that you are at work in our lives. You are at work in the lives of those you have placed us in as well. And God, I pray that you would give us faith and I pray that you would give us hope and I pray that you would encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a year or two after we moved here to South Carolina from British Columbia, we you know, we planted a garden. We were really optimistic. The, the growing season's a lot longer here than it is up in BC. Um, we don't have near the amount of of chilly, rainy days as we did up there. And so we were really optimistic. We thought, you know, this is going to be great. Everywhere around us, is, we're surrounded by fields and crops are growing everywhere. It must be really easy to grow this garden. And so... I, I planted some raised beds, I got some soil, I tilled the ground, we got it all ready, we planted a garden, and the first year it was spectacular, I had irrigation set up and everything automatically to water it at regular intervals, and, and it was a great garden, and it flourished, and it was huge, and we thought, wow, this is great being here, this is going to be awesome every year. We were wrong. Um, the next year was a little harder, the garden didn't do quite as well, but it was still pretty good. And it still kind of paid off, you know, that, that effort versus, you know, what you get in return. And But by the third year we tried the garden, it was a flop. And everything we did was awful. It, nothing worked. We, we, we worked hard at it. We, we did all the watering. We did everything we knew to do. And yet it still just didn't work. And it turns out that it, the trees had grown up around us and there's, there's too much shade. And so I finally said, okay, well... We can't figure this out, but maybe it's the, maybe it's the shade. So we moved the garden where it could get more sun and, and I was optimistic again. I thought, that's it. This is going to be great again. Like the first year, this is going to be awesome. And I got soil and all that stuff all over again, but it didn't go as well as I thought. Um, our crops all began to mature and grow and we thought, oh, we're going to have a great bountiful harvest. We had squash and, and all kinds of plants and we had tons of tomatoes and beans and all kinds of stuff. But just before we we're going to harvest them all, all of a sudden they all died. We couldn't figure it out what's going on. And we find out that these, we had little invasive bugs that had eaten all the roots of, of our crops and it basically killed everything right before we were going to pick it. And so they all rotted on the vine within about a couple days. We gave up our garden. I don't know if I'll do a garden again. I don't know. Um, it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, it, it just wasn't worth the payoff. We weren't getting those juicy tomatoes anymore. And, and you know, we kind of became discouraged. And I'm kind of like apathetic about gardening, especially if produce prices remain low, right? I mean, is it really worth the effort and amount of time it takes? And I think sometimes in the Christian walk, we can kind of, we can kind of be like that. We can kind of view our life and whether we have faith and hope for growth in our own lives, kind of like that, kind of like I view my garden. And at times we can, you know, we, we can become dispassionate. You know, at first when we move 
into our new life in Christ. We begin strong. We begin, we're optimistic about, about growth. And there might even be explosive growth early on when you first became a Christian. And maybe you're passionate about not only growing personally, but about spreading the gospel message no matter who you talk to. You were just excited. You were growing. You were talking about God. Everything was going well, right? And you thought, this is going to be easy. This is going to be great. Every year, my Christian walk is going to be one, one peak to another. And then reality kind of sets in. And things get difficult. And maybe the sun beats down on you and your Christian walk. And... Problems arise and weeds and bugs creep into our life. And, you know, the effect it can have is that we can begin to lose hope. We can begin to lack faith for, for what God has planted within us, for, for cultivating growth. We can lack faith for, for spreading the kingdom as well. We can forget that even though we must work, we can become so focused on our work that we can forget that really God is the ultimate master gardener. He's the one who is at work. And we can forget, unlike my illustration, I, where I'm the gardener, God is our gardener and he never gives up. He's always actively working. He's always actively pursuing. He's the one cultivating. He's the one tending. Sometimes, though, we can become so focused on our work that we think that it all depends upon us. That it's all about our work and our tending. And, but God's the one who brings growth. He's the one who establishes his kingdom. But sometimes we can lose heart and stop gardening, can't we? We can lose faith. We can stop pursuing growth, stop cultivating the ground, stop regularly fertilizing and and watering ourselves and feeding with the Word of God. And we can become less excited about the Christian walk, less excited about our mission, less excited about the part we have to play as God spreads the gospel and establishes His kingdom. And I think that passages like the one we have this morning, they are examples set before us for us to see some things. They're not just, what did Paul and Silas do in that day? But what is God at work doing? What was God doing is really what's first and foremost in this passage. It's not really all about Paul and Silas working, although they did work. They were involved. They're at the center of the story, if you will. But really, they're not the main players in the story. The main character in this story, in the early church as well, and for us, is God. And the main idea that that I want us to get this morning that I believe that God would have for us is that He is active. God is active in spreading the gospel and establishing His kingdom. Why is that important for us to see? Because if we forget that God is the one who is active in, in spreading the gospel and establishing the kingdom, we'll become really centered on ourselves and we'll begin to lose heart, we'll begin to lose faith, we'll begin to lose hope, we'll become discouraged, weary, and tired. You ever feel that way? It's kind of a, I don't even know if I need to ask that question after Christmas. Do I really? How many people feel tired, you know? Um, I know that like a week after Christmas, you need the next, next week to just recover sometimes. And so sometimes you can, you can feel like it all depends upon us. And what we need to see is that God is the one who's active. God is the one who's active in spreading the gospel. And he's the one who's establishing his kingdom. Now, he calls us to be a part of that. But we need to see that God's the primary player. For the first time in this account, Paul, it's a monumental occasion here. Paul, he's left the region of Asia back then. It was um, Turkey, what we know as today. It's the, for the very first time the gospel is being sent strategically to Europe. And he goes into what we know today as, as modern day Greece. It was Macedonia back then. And the city probably had very small Jewish presence at best. 
Um, we, we know that because there's, there's no mention of a synagogue there. And it only takes 10 heads of households to form a synagogue. And so when Paul goes to that city, there's, there's no synagogue there. But they're meeting down by the river. And they would do that because um, there was Roman law that provided protection for other religions that were not considered sanctioned. They could go down by the river outside of the city by bodies of water and they could meet together. And so beginning... Normally, Paul would begin to go to synagogues, but instead of that, he begins and he, he, he tries to figure out where, where's a population that is seeking God? Where are they meeting? And, and he just tries to figure it out in a normal way. There's no kind of divination here. He doesn't hear anything from the Spirit. And then for his companions, maybe Luke was from that city. Maybe he said, hey, Paul, there's a bunch of Jews who meet down by the river. Whatever means, though, Paul and his companions, they go down to the river on the Sabbath, our text tells us, because it would be normal for Jews to be gathered there. It would be really normal for people who are of the Jewish faith to go and be gathered on the Sabbath somewhere where they're allowed to be gathered. And so Luke writes at the beginning and simply says, And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, you might not think that's very spectacular. You might think these are, these are pretty mundane verses, the first couple of verses in this passage, verses 11, 12, and 13. They're... They're really kind of mundane, right? Because it's talking about just this, they're taking a trip, they're going there, they look for a place where the Jews are meeting, they go down by the river and they sit down and they talk to these women. But there's some things I think that God wants us to see from this passage, and even from these verses. And the first principle that we'll see is that as God is busy spreading the gospel and establishing his kingdom, he often uses just very normal means. God uses normal means. What is that, what, is, what I mean by that? Well, it was, it was not like a spectacular Vision that Paul had, he said, let's go down to the river, there'll be women gathered there. No, they just thought, you know what, where would people be gathered that will be ready and willing to hear about God and talk about the things of God? And so they went down to the river as a normal means, a very normal avenue to begin to talk about God. They just look for a normal way to talk to people and share the good news about Jesus. And I was thinking about that for us today, too. Sometimes, you know, we, we are called very clearly as Christians to, to go and, and share the gospel. But often we really overlook those normal means that God uses. And we forget that. And we think that God's really just kind of flashing lights and say, this is the guy you need to talk to. But you know what? That rarely happens. Most of the time, God uses normal means and expects us to use normal means like this, too, as he spreads the gospel, but he uses these normal means to do some pretty spectacular things, doesn't he? And that's true for us today as well, that God will use our very normal, seemingly mundane means to do spectacular things as he spreads the gospel and establishes his kingdom. Let's think about some of the ways that we could look for normal ways to share the good news about Jesus. There's some very normal things that we could do. Maybe, maybe that looks like inviting a coworker who's having a difficult time to lunch. So you can talk to him and share a reason for the hope that lies within you and, and point him to real hope. Maybe it looks like taking baked goods to neighbors this time of year because it's pretty normal. They wouldn't think you're weird if you do that. And maybe you can strike up a conversation, have an opportunity to talk to them about God. You know, right now with um, the last couple of weeks, all the, all the music playing on all the different stations and whenever you go into department stores or anywhere else, you always hear these carols. They're all talking about the truth of God. A better opportunity to use normal means like this to be able to talk to people about him. Maybe you can invite fellow student who's wondering about what life is all about, or maybe they seem to be struggling and searching for meaning. They're, they're wondering, why are we here? I don't know about you, but when I was in high school and in my early days in college, that was some of the things I really wrestled with. And, and what a great opportunity to say, you know, hey, can we go out to lunch? I want to talk to you about, like, why, do, why are we here? 
Use some normal means. Maybe invite them to read through a one-on-one Bible study with them to see what Christianity is all about. If you're a parent, we have, we have those opportunities every day, right? If you have children in the home, look for those normal opportunities to, to spread the gospel, to help be a part as God is going to establish his kingdom, trusting that he's going to be at work because he's going to use your normal means. Think about the different opportunities that I have. We can pray together at meals. We can take time to eat dinner together. You know, some families are very busy. And you know what? Make time to be together as a family. Make time to, to be together. Just to spend time together so that you'll have those opportunities to talk about your day and what your struggles were and to share the good news about Jesus with your own kids. Share your struggles where you failed. Use those normal means and opportunities. You know, parents, use bedtimes and take your kids through a good book like we've got on the, on the book table. It's um, long story short. It's walking people, kids through the Bible. God will use those normal means. He even uses those normal means of asking forgiveness when you sin against your children. If you're a parent, I can guarantee you sin against your kids. I do every day. And yet, it's, it's sometimes he uses those normal means of just, hey, asking their forgiveness and explaining that we need God's grace too. We're, we're flawed. We're failed. You know what? All of us do, including you. We all, we all need God's grace and his forgiveness. I know sometimes we've had good conversations with our servers at restaurants when we tell them we're going to pray for our meal and we say, hey, is there anything I can pray for you about? And sometimes they're like, look at you like you've got four heads. But other times they say, well, yeah, I'm really struggling. And then you pray for them and then you you can dialogue with them. There's a a couple of people that we go to regularly that um, whenever we see them, they share their lives with us. And, and God, I think, is slowly building some relationships there that will begin to share the reason for the hope that lies within us. And you might be surprised as you step out, you look for some of those normal means. Paul and Silas were looking for just a normal means to be able to speak the truth of God's word. And when they stepped out, they used normal means, and God did something significant. And something I think you might be surprised to find as well is that God, God's at work, and he's at work opening hearts. And that's the second reality that we're going to see from this passage today is that God opens hearts. He uses normal means to open hearts, to do something that we could never do. And so in verse 14, he tells us, he says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, you need to note there when it says worshiper of God, that's, that's, that's talking about a Gentile who is seeking God and seeking the Jewish religion, but he has not actually given themselves over fully to it. They've not... Um, they're not following all the ceremonial laws, but they would be considered God worshipers because they were searching. She wasn't a Christian, though. She didn't know the truth about Jesus Christ. And so apart from God opening her heart, she never would have. But God just uses normal means of Paul and Silas. They go down to the river. They find where people are gathering. They speak to him about Jesus. And God does something spectacular. He opens her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And there's a little side point there that I want to make is that if you notice, who is Paul, who are Paul and Silas going to? And think about who Paul is as well. Paul's a rabbi. He used to be a, an esteemed Jewish teacher of the law. And, and where they're going, they don't, they don't go to who you would typically expect them to go to down by the river. They go, they go to a group of women. And so I think that's actually a reflection of the fact that not only is Lydia's heart opened, but it's a reflection of the fact that God has actually opened Paul and Silas's hearts to be able to interact with these women directly, something that would have been a cultural taboo. 
You know, Paul would have probably prayed at one time, as all rabbis did in that day, God, I thank you that I'm not a slave or a woman. It's a very chauvinistic way of looking at things. Now, you had to put yourself in their shoes. Now, at this time, this would have been revolutionary. Paul and Silas, they go down and they talk to a group of women. Why? Because God's changed them. He's opened up their hearts. And as they go and engage these people they never would have otherwise spoken to directly, God uses this very normal means of talking about him to open up their hearts. And so it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, what does it mean the Lord opened her heart? Why in the world did her heart need to be opened? What does, what does that mean? You know, what does she have doors in her heart and they say, open up her heart doors? What, what does that mean? It's not my open heart surgery. What's going on here? Well, it's speaking metaphorically. The heart is the, the inner person, the core of who they are. And, and scripture tells us that really the core of who we are is not open to God. Actually, Paul wrote in Romans 3.11. You can write that little verse down. Romans 3.11. Paul wrote, he says, No one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, it doesn't mean that people aren't looking for answers, but no one truly understands God unless God opens their heart. Her heart needed to be open because on her own she wouldn't understand. In Ephesians 2, Paul also wrote in Ephesians 2, 1-3, he says, And you, speaking to people who are now Christians, he says, You were dead. Think about that. Can, can a dead heart hear? Can a dead heart respond? Can a dead heart pay attention? Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, all of us were once dead in sin. Maybe you're here this morning, you've not yet responded to Jesus Christ and placed your faith in Him. I pray that God would open your heart right now that you'd be able to receive and hear. And if you are understanding what I'm saying and you are experiencing conviction, I would encourage you to respond because God's opening your heart. God's at work. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So Lydia needed the Lord to open up her heart. And all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we all need God to open up our hearts as well. Sorry about that. Hang on. And according to the Bible, all of us were one time blind to the truth and all of our hearts were dead in sins. And yet God opened up Lydia's heart's Heart, and don't, don't grow too familiar with those kind of occurrences. Don't grow too familiar with the fact that God's opened up your heart as well. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I feel really dull today. I don't feel really alive to God. Um, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to give you hope and encourage you that God's opened up your heart. Why is that important? Why? Because you have now been made alive to God and you can hear from God. God's opened up your heart and God opens up the hearts of all the people that we speak to, no matter how far they may seem. And maybe you encountered some of your relatives or friends that seem pretty far gone this Christmas. I know Thanksgiving, I was I kind of came away from that experience a little discouraged because I was thinking about a relative who's just continuing to go further and further into blindness. And yet I need this passage because I need to know that God opens hearts. Because He opened my heart. I was the biggest liar and deceiver manipulator that I I knew. And and unfortunately, nobody knew that, which is awful. And yet God opened my heart to him. And so if God could open my heart, I can have confidence that he's going to continue to be at work in my heart, revealing himself to me. He's going to be at work in the hearts of all those I encounter as well. 
You see, in Ephesians 2, 4, Paul goes on to explain, he says, but God, this is right after the pastors talking about how we were all once dead in the trespasses and sins and all of us walked that way. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Let's, let's look back on that. Let's reflect on that. Let's see that God is actively at work opening hearts. And if he opened our hearts to begin with, he's going to open our hearts to all those areas that are dead to him now, that, that seemingly dead to him now, that, that we are dull in. We can have faith and trust that God's going to continue to reveal what we need to see, even if we feel dull or blind in some ways. And you know what? Maybe that applies to somebody in your family or a spouse or a friend. We have faith that God opens hearts. And we see that Lydia, God opened her heart not only because it says so directly, but because it says that she responded and was baptized in something that Paul only did after someone had believed in the Lord Jesus. She responds to the gospel. She believes and she is baptized. In verse 15, if you look down your Bible, she says to them, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. What does that mean? I think the NIV puts it really helpfully. It says, If you consider me a believer in the Lord... Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so it was evident that God had opened her heart. And Paul and Silas they, and Timothy and Luke and the whole, the whole group there, they considered her a believer. They saw that it was genuine, that she had responded. God had opened her heart and she believed. And so they went to her house. God uses normal means and God opens hearts. And next we're going to see that as God spreads the gospel and establishes his kingdom, the third reality we're going to see is that God delivers. God uses normal means, he opens hearts, and he delivers. God delivers. That's the third point. God delivers. Well, you see that in verses 16 to 18. There's many stories of U.S. prisoners of war in the conflict with Iraq from, from 2001 until recent years. Uh, there are many different prisoners of war taken for short periods of time, but they remained hopeful. They didn't give up. And each and every one of them, they, had, they share a similar story. They, they didn't lose heart. They didn't give up because they knew that their country would come to rescue them. They had faith. They had hope that, that the U.S. would come to deliver them, for, to, to deliver them from captivity. I think sometimes we can forget that God is a God who delivers. He delivered us from our greatest enemy. He delivered us from the greatest enemy of sin and death and the devil. We're no longer enslaved. We're no longer in bondage. And yet we can forgive it, forget that God continues to deliver. And we can forget that not only will God continue to deliver us from what we face, but he, he continues to deliver others no matter how far gone they seem to be. You see in the passage, there is this demon-possessed slave girl. And, and, and what this passage helps us see is that we can have faith that God is a God who delivers even from those who are oppressed or possessed by the devil. Find verse 16, it says, Paul and Silas, they're going back to the place of prayer. They're presumably talking to people they are more about Jesus, and as they went, the devil sends his forces to intercept and harass them and confuse people that they talk to, and he sends them in the form of this, this demon-possessed slave girl. Not only was this a slave girl physically, she was in bondage demonically, spiritually. And the slave girl in Acts, she was, she was well known by the locals to have 
great demonic powers to be able to divine or tell the future. And, and she made a lot of money for her slave masters. She made a whole lot of money for them. And, and it seems kind of odd what she goes behind them saying. It says, look down in your Bible. It says, so she was following them around and saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And if you're just reading that first blush, you might think, well, what's so bad about that, right? What's so bad about that? These men are servants of the Most High God. Yeah, right. And they're proclaiming the way of salvation. Well, that's true. So why did Paul get all worked up? Why was he greatly annoyed? What was going on here? Well, and, and, our, and our, you have to put yourself a little bit back further into that culture, into that day, and the people that she was surrounded by. She wasn't surrounded by a bunch of Christians who knew the Word of God. She was surrounded by a bunch of Greeks who believe in a pantheon of gods. And so although now it could sound like she's saying a good thing, really probably most of the Greco-Roman culture around her who believed in the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, when when they heard her saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, they could have heard it just as simply as a Most High God or one God who's the highest God among many pagan gods. And so it would have been subtly confusing the truth of Christianity with the culture around them. It would have been blurring the lines of distinction. It would have been making Paul's message really unclear because as Paul's sitting there talking to a bunch of people about the one true God, the only God, and Paul is saying there is hope found in Jesus Christ, his son. And when Paul's saying that, and then this demon-possessed girl, who everybody knows is demon-possessed, says, yes, these men are talking about the most high God, and I am too. Do you see how that could be misleading? How that could be confusing? And then when they, she says, they proclaim to you the way of salvation, really the, the, the language there really may mean only a way of salvation. And so it makes what she's saying even more subtly disturbing, even more confusing. Is this as she was saying? Maybe you've heard this argument today. We all have the truth. You ever heard that before? Or maybe, you know, they're telling you one of many ways to come to God. And and all ways are acceptable to come to God. And that's the kind of thing she was saying. It's kind of like the insidious modern mantra that we hear today. Today we, we hear from popular talk show hosts. That Christianity is one of many paths to God. One of the most popular talk show hosts even has many Christians on her show. She seems nice and caring and kind and generous and... It sounds very acceptable and palatable, and which makes it all the more insidious and dangerous. Just like this demon-possessed girl, what she was saying was very insidious and dangerous, and it was very misleading. And it's misleading to affirm that, that people today who say, well, yes, there's one of many paths that all people are seeking the same good, and, and we all get there different ways. Well, that's really dangerous because it's not true, and it's actually damning. And it's not hopeful at all. It's, it's not judgmental in a negative way for us to say, no, I want you to understand the real truth because I want you to find the one true God and find life in the God who delivers. It would be wrong for us to say anything else. And so Luke writes that Paul was greatly annoyed. He doesn't say that very often of Paul. I'd like to actually see Paul greatly annoyed, maybe because I get greatly annoyed sometimes for the wrong reasons. I like to at least see him greatly annoyed for the right reason. And so it says, Paul was greatly annoyed. But here, he's not being greatly annoyed because of his own preferences. He was greatly annoyed that she was distracting and confusing people and misleading them. And she was a barrier to the gospel. 
So Paul turns to her, and what does he say? Look down your Bible. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And this is one of the very few instances where Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, so clearly. And he does that because he, he wants it to be evident that Jesus Christ is the one who has authority over this spirit that she has, over any and all other supposed gods. Jesus Christ is more powerful than any fortune teller. And he wants it to be evident to everybody around. And and then it says that she was immediately delivered. That very hour, that very moment, she was immediately delivered. And this isn't something that just occurred that day. I think we've become immune to the fact that the devil continues to be real and present and work in our day and age. And we don't like to think about the fact that the devil is actually at work in the world around us and motivating people as well. Now, we can't go looking under every rock looking for the devil to be active, but... It's reality that is true. I remember a few years ago, I was at a popular Christian conference for young adults, and there was a girl who was having a really hard time, and she was unusually distracting to her friends and seemed very confused. She wasn't hostile outright, but what she was saying was distracting to her friends. And eventually a couple of the friends came and said, something's really off here. I'm not sure what's going on, and this person's really struggling. I don't know why. And and, and every time I bring something up, they, they, they make a counterpoint that's just, it, it makes things very foggy and vague. And so we went and talked to her. And when we did, it became clear this, this girl was really unusually confused. And she would say things that were not only contrary to the Bible. She was casting down on the truth. She, she was foggy. She seemed like she couldn't see clearly. She was offering alternative explanations that sounded palatable. All the while, she was so confused. And I just had this, this impression, just pray for her and pray that, God, if there's, if there's any demonic activity, any evil spirits here, you must leave in the name of Jesus. So I did that really simply and, you know, it wasn't any weird exorcism or anything crazy like that. But it was interesting. As soon as I prayed that, her immediately her countenance was changed. She, the fog went away. She became clear. She started crying. She experienced conviction. She responded to God. She began to change and she's living for him now. And there's other stories like this that I've heard and that I have. And when God delivers people and God continues to deliver people like he delivered the slave girl next. Now, the devil has changed his tactics sometimes because it's it's... It's easier to spot when it's outright. It's easier to spot when it's more blatant. But God is still a God who delivers, no matter how subtle it might seem. And we can still trust in God that He is more powerful than any other force. And we don't need to be afraid or fearful and intimidated by people who might be under demonic control or seem powerful or seem to be able to tell the future because Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth and He is the great deliverer. Even though God delivers, though, we can see in this passage, it's kind of interesting. God delivers this woman from demonic possession. And then we see all of a sudden, as a result of that, God brings suffering. He uses difficult circumstances, though, even though he delivers. And persecution, we're going to see in a moment, is part of his plan to spread the gospel and establish his kingdom. And so in the midst of what we're going to see in a moment, this this persecution that Paul and Silas face, we're going to see another reality that Luke's trying to show to us, and it's that God empowers. He doesn't always physically deliver his people from physical circumstances, but God delivers his people from spiritual bondage, and then he empowers his people no matter what they might face. Look at verse 19, if you will, please. It shows us that as soon as the slave girl had been delivered by God, her, her master saw that 
She was no good to them for making money anymore and their hope of gain was gone. And so what do they do? They forcibly grab Paul and Silas and they drag him into the marketplace. I can just imagine, you know, Paul and Silas are sitting there, they're talking to people about God and then all of a sudden from behind they get yanked out of their seats, you know, and they get dragged to the marketplace. This is not a, this is not a, a welcome. This is not a friendly dragging. They're getting dragged away to the marketplace, taken back into the city. And they take him back to the marketplace because that is the place where city rulers and Roman cities would sit and the magistrates would rule from this, this raised, this elevated seat called the Bema seat and they would pass judgment. And so Luke tells us in verse 20 that the charge they leveled against them, if you look down your Bibles, it says, these men are Jews. They're making it about an ethnic difference. It says, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not law for us, for us as Romans to accept or practice. You have to understand that all Romans were expected to worship the emperor and doubtless Paul was preaching his only right to worship the one true God. So they were, per- they, were, they, were, they were preaching things that were contrary, their customs that were not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. That was partially true. In addition, though, Romans, they accepted all religions as long as one religion didn't seem to threaten or another or bring harm to another religion. And that kind of sounds familiar to us today, doesn't it? We live in an era where people can claim tolerance unless one religion seems to threaten or be disruptive to another religion or say another religion is wrong and then that religion is viewed as intolerant. The Romans lived in the same kind of culture back then and so when Paul was saying, no, there's only one way to God, they said, These, they're teaching things that are not okay for us. They're disturbing our city and really what they were disturbing their city with was they were threatening their livelihood these men had had lost their income that's why they're responding this way that's why that was the motivation for why they dragged them out of the city and the you know i think today in north america you can easily lose your job and your reputation can be ruined if you take a stand for christian principles because they are wrongly seen to cause harm to others the idea of making somebody feel bad or believe that their practice is anathema, I mean, that is, is not right, it's, it's anathema to our society. And the Romans really championed this idea of letting everybody observe whatever religion and custom they wanted. And so the charge of trying to get them to do what they don't normally do would have been very serious. It a very serious accusation. And actually in our, our culture today, it's a very serious accusation. You're intolerant. But they saw really why they were reacting that way. They saw what Paul was doing is taking away their livelihood. And it would have definitely disturbed the citizens. would have been seen to threat. They probably thought if Paul could command this girl and remove our livelihood or their livelihood, what could stop him from making all of the people lose their livelihood? What if Paul said that what we were doing was wrong too? Could we lose our livelihood? And so they were scared. Their God, though, was really money. They weren't seeking truth. They were less concerned about the plight of this slave girl who was demon-possessed. They weren't concerned that she was now set free. They were concerned they lost their income. And that's a common theme for Luke, too, in, in both the book of Luke and in Acts, is that money sometimes can blind us from seeing God's deliverance. But they weren't right in their charges. Paul and Silas didn't have a chance to defend themselves. They're wrongly seen as ethnic outsiders, even though we're going to find later they really are Romans. 
And it says in verse 22, look down your Bible, it says, the crowd joined in attacking them. Think about that for a moment. All this had to have been a little frightening to Paul and Silas. They're first, they're violently dragged away, and then they're wrongly accused, and now the mob begins to attack them. That would have been a little bit overwhelming, or could have been at least. And then the magistrates, they strip them so their backs are bare, and they order that these Roman rod bearers, these luctores, they, they deliver blows and begin to beat them severely with rods. Some of the versions say when they had landed not, not, not a few blows, when they had severely beaten them, when they had given them many stripes. This wasn't a light warning. I remember many years ago in Singapore, there was this um, huge uproar because uh, an American uh, and Singaporean child, a child of American and Singapore parents, he, he went back to Singapore. I can't remember his offense. It was very minor. And he got caught doing this minor offense on top of all the minor offenses. So it was, it was uh, spray painting a car, I think. And he had gotten caught doing that. And then the, the big uproar was, oh my goodness, they're going to cane him. You know, half the people thought, well, maybe that's a good idea. They give him a good spanking. He'll stop doing that stupid stuff. And then another half of people said, no, caning is really brutal. And just a few blows could actually make people pass out. They're so hard and painful. This was a severe caning. And then to add insult to their injuries, that would have left many stripes of welts. It would have been opened and, and bloodied on their backs. And then to add insult to injury, the magistrate says, keep them securely. So what does a jailer do? If you look down your Bible, it says that, he threw them into the inner prison, which is at the, the most secure part of the prison where they can't get out. But not only that, he put them in stocks. Now, stocks are these, these rectangular wooden things that they lock down around legs and your legs are spread out and you can't move. And they're on the ground. And so you're, you're sitting on the ground. You can't move. And the only position you can have is either to sit like that. And that's not a great position to sleep in. I don't know if you ever, if you ever sat on a hard ground with your legs straight and tried to sleep. It doesn't work. If you try to get some rest and relaxation, it doesn't really work. It's not really comfortable. After about half an hour, you know, your legs start to fall asleep, other things. And, and, and then also, the only other alternative to that would have been laying back on their backs that were welted and bloody. So, to, so they were in a dire position. But yet, Luke tells us something really astounding. Look down at verse 25. Let's read verse 25 together. He writes, About midnight... Paul and Silas, these men who are broken, have broken backs, you know, they're, they're, they're broken with welts. They're stuck in stocks on this floor of a prison. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I, I don't know about you, but that's not what I expect to read, that that two guys have just been beaten within an inch of their life and, and placed into stocks in this, in this inner dungeon that you would normally expect. They've been dragged away from preaching the gospel, stripped, beaten publicly, thrown in the worst part of the prison, placed in stocks, you, and they couldn't sleep, they couldn't move around. You wouldn't expect them to be singing hymns to God, would you? What's Luke trying to show us here? Luke's trying to show us that, that God was supernaturally empowering them. God was empowering Paul and Silas in the midst of persecution and suffering so that not only were they able to pray, but they were able to sing hymns to God. That's not a normal occurrence. Whenever you come across things like this, you think, okay, that's not a natural human response. Hey, I got beaten, I'm in stocks, let's sing hymns to God, you know? Joyful, joyful, we adore Him, or whatever they sang, I don't know. 
They weren't complaining. It doesn't say they were distraught or fearful. They didn't respond with doubt. They didn't wallow in self-pity. They prayed and they sang praises. That's not normal. God's empowering them in the midst of suffering. And he's showing that God empowers his people to enable them to respond in a way that glorifies him even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Now, when you encounter difficult circumstances, what I do, my first reaction is not to, to sit and pray. Or maybe it is, but it's, it's kind of half-hearted, feeble prayer. God, deliver me. And then I start complaining. But I think we need to see pastors like this. See, no, God actually can empower us. He can enable us to, to give thanks in the midst of really crummy circumstances and to glorify him even though we are suffering. And he can use that as we glorify God in the midst of our suffering to speak to other people, to all the other prisoners who says we're listening. They were giving an attentive ear. They were trying to hear what they said. And so now, empowered by God, they're, they weren't glad for their circumstances by any means, but they had a God-oriented perspective. They were acknowledging that God's overall things. He's worthy to be praised, even in the midst of suffering. Empowered by God, they're, they're praying out loudly. They're boldly singing hymns to God. And they use this terrible situation to glorify him. And then verse 26 to 34, we see this, this fifth reality of how God spread the gospel and establishes the kingdom. You see, the fifth reality we're going to see is that God also rescues. God uses normal means. God opens hearts. God delivers. God empowers. And God rescues. Now, this is not the kind of rescue we saw earlier in Acts, is it? Earlier in Acts, we saw that God rescued Peter. He sends an angel there. The angel breaks him out and says, come follow me. All the guards are asleep. And he walks out through the doors and everything's good. And Peter goes on his way. He's not in prison still. But this is not that kind of rescue. And it's a kind of a surprising rescue in one sense. In, at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying. They're singing hymns. And all of a sudden, God sends this mighty earthquake. He's doing something bigger. He's got a bigger rescue mission he's on, though. He's not just rescuing Paul and Silas. He's rescuing this, this Roman jailer. And he rescues the jailer, not only from physically killing himself. It says that he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, 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 stop. We're all here. But God sets up this whole situation to rescue the jailer from eternal death. Verse 26, it, it describes, it says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. It was such a, a violent earthquake that it says that the doors of the prison, they were immediately opened and all of their chains, they fell off. Now when that happens, I probably would have been like, woohoo, and ran out the door. But Paul and Silas, they knew that that jailer's life was more important than their physical freedom. And it might have seemed like an ideal time to run, but they saw that they needed to, to save his life, that he needed to be rescued. You see, why he was taking his own life is because the legal code of that day would have called for um, a jailer or a, a prison keeper that if, if it was due to their negligence that prisoners escaped or their lack of watchfulness, that they would be put to death. And so this, this jailer knew that ancient code of honor and he was getting ready to put himself to death. Why? Because it says he was asleep. When the earthquake came, and he assumed, oh my goodness, I'm asleep. This earthquake came. I should have been awake. I should have been watching. And I'm, I'm, all the prisoners have escaped. I'm, I'm at fault. That's my fault. I was sleeping. I wasn't paying attention. But yet, God used Paul. Somehow he either heard or saw the jailer about to commit suicide. And he yells out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer is astonished. He gets some lights lit. He rushes in. He's trembling with fear. 
And likely he's trembling probably for a few reasons. One, he's just given up the idea of taking his life. And so he's astonished that they're there. He, he would have known why they were there. He would have known the charges against them. He would have known it was because they were proclaiming a different religion. And in the midst of that, he would have known that these men who were proclaiming a different religion, this earthquake gave them the ability to go free, and yet they did not go free. Oh my goodness, they have a powerful God that they're serving. And they weren't self-seeking like the others in the jailer's town, Paul and Silas, were seeking his good. And so he goes and he says, what must I do to be saved? Your God is clearly mighty. He clearly makes a difference not only in the physical world, but in your lives because you're not like every other prisoner I've had. You didn't seek to escape. How can I be saved by rescued by this great God? Because I don't want to experience justice from him. And so they answer him simply. It's really the core of the saving message of the gospel of Jesus. It's the the core response about Jesus. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And God uses this imprisonment, this situation of, of jail, to deliver, to set free the jailer. Verses 32 to 34, they tell us of his response and God's gracious deliverance of his whole household in detail. And then it tells us how Paul and Silas, they spoke the word of the Lord to everybody in his house and, and to all of his family. And his family all responded. They believed in God. They were delivered from their sins. They all were rescued. They all were saved. Because God often works through difficult means to bring about his rescue. Jailers rescued from physical death and rescued from eternal death both. And, and I love the poetic imagery that's here in these verses. This is very poetic imagery that, that Luke is using. He says the jailer washes their wounds. And then he himself was washed, baptized. The jailer washed their physical wounds and he himself was washed. Their wounds are washed and his sins are washed. Which is what baptism symbolizes. And we see here really that it's it's a great picture of God's rescuing, God's redeeming grace. And then lastly, in verses 35 to 40, there's something to glean from this as well, is that as God spreads the gospel, establishes his kingdom, he preserves his church. So this this sixth final reality that we're going to look at is that God preserves. He preserves. God preserves his people. He preserves his church. Verse 35 tells us the magistrates sent to the police to the jail and said, let these men go. But Paul effectively says, no way. Are you kidding me? I'm not leaving. His response, look down in your Bibles in verse 37. It says, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? I don't think so. He didn't say that. No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul plays a trump card. He tells them he's a Roman citizen. And now, Roman citizens, you have to know, were, were never to be punished without a fair hearing and trial. It was never allowed for them to be publicly shamed like this without making a full defense. And the job of a magistrate would have been actually to protect Roman citizens from injustice. And yet now these magistrates have committed injustice themselves against Roman citizens. If Paul and Silas pressed it, they would have lost their jobs and never been magistrates again. And likely they would have been punished for that. But Paul doesn't do that, which is interesting. He's not as concerned with his own 
innocence or release, although it might seem like that at first blush. I think Paul was strategically asking for them to come publicly to usher him out, not just so he can feel good about themselves, but so that everybody could see that not only were Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they weren't guilty, but the Christians, the new believers, were not guilty either. Because they would have associated Paul with these this new sect, these new believers. And if Paul was found guilty, the, the believers' lives would have been very difficult, would have been very hard. And yet God uses this imprisonment and then he uses the deliverance and the rescue of a jailer and he uses setting free in Romans, Roman citizenship of Paul to protect the church there, to preserve the church. If Paul was exonerated, shown to be innocent, and, and, the, and he let the magistrates off easy, it was pretty likely those magistrates would say, you know what, we kind of owe him one. And so we're going we're gonna to give them a little space. We're going to see that not only are they innocent, but we, we understand that they're not trying to cause difficulties for us. And, and God used that to preserve the church in Philippi. And we know that from the, the letter to the Philippians. The church there flourished after Paul left. And it was a good example to other churches. And in Philippi, Paul wrote at the end of Philippians, it ended up being one of the only churches when he, after he left Macedonia to support Paul. And in Philippians 1.3, Paul, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you and always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, God used this circumstances and he used all kinds of negative circumstances as well to preserve and protect his church. And after Paul was released, he goes back to Lydia's house and Luke writes in verse 40, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I think we should end there today as well. They, they, they encouraged them. May we be encouraged as we see that, that God is actively at work. He's the one who's spreading the gospel. He is the one who's establishing his kingdom. God is the one who uses normal means to open up hearts. God is the one who delivers. God is the one who empowers in the midst of suffering. God is the one who rescues and God is the one who preserves. Let me encourage by something else too in these verses is that if you notice there's three different types of people that Paul goes to. One is a Gentile woman, someone that Paul would not normally have gone to. Then he goes to another, and she's wealthy class, and he goes to another type of person. It's a slave, someone that normally would not be seen as, as worthy. And he goes to a slave girl, not only that, who's demon-possessed. And then the third person that Paul goes to is this, this Roman jailer. They, he would have been the, the antithesis, really, of, of God's law. He would have been seen as an enemy of God's people. And yet the gospel goes to all kinds of people. God spreads the gospel, establishes his kingdom to every kind and every class of people. And God's at work today actively God uses our normal means he opened up our heart and he opens up the heart of people we might encounter God delivers from the most difficult circumstances maybe you find yourself in a difficult circumstance this morning or you know somebody who is and maybe it's demonic maybe it's not maybe it's just difficult trial you're going through God is the God who delivers maybe you felt like you could never change I don't feel like I'm growing God's going to open your heart he opened your heart to begin with he'll be at work God's a God who, who rescues.
He's the God who's going to empower you no matter what you're going through to glorify Him in the midst of suffering. And God is going to preserve you. Go ahead and ask the band to come forward. As they come forward, if you could stand, please. Go ahead and stand and let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the great gardener. Not only when you first created the world, you established the Garden of Eden, Lord. You are at work in our lives. You have not given up. You have not ceased to work in us. You planted your seeds in our lives for those of us who have placed our faith in you to begin with, Lord. And God, even now you're planting seeds in the lives of those who have not yet placed their faith in you. God, you're the master cultivator. You're the master gardener. You've not given up. You're the one who brings fruit. You're the one who causes to grow, Lord. You're, you're the one who preserves and protects and, and causes to increase. And Lord, we will look to you in faith and in hope. And God, I pray for those who feel weary or wanting to give up. Lord, I pray for those who may be disenchanted, Lord, that, that we would all see that you are at work. And that even in our own lives, you're establishing your kingdom and that your kingdom is still continuing to be established in the world around us. And that we can trust in you to use our own means for you to be at work in spectacular ways. So God, I pray that you would encourage us this morning. We find hope and faith in you, the great gardener. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.